talking baseball. Klazuski, Campanella talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller. Yes, we are, everyone, and welcome back to episode 12 of Dirty Kurtz Dugout. It's been a couple of weeks, and I've got to explain to you the issues uh, that have prompted the fact that I haven't had a show to you in a week, and I apologize for that. It's It's been a combination of a flood that I had in my house and also both my boys being in a baseball championship over in the Phoenix area where I had to go over there and stay for a couple of weeks. Now, I could have I could have done it while I was in Phoenix, but it would have been a lot more difficult. Tonight's show, we're going to talk about the gamut. The All-Star Game, last night's All-Star Game, did you like it? We're going to talk about the Players Association. We're going to talk about the commissioner. We're going to talk about umpires. We're going to talk about the state of the game. We're going to talk about travel baseball. We're going to talk about fundamentals. All on the pine with me. This is Kurt Bavacqua. Welcome to Dirty Kurt's Dugout. And we're going to start off with a guy that spent 14 years in the big leagues. And I just met him for the first time. Over in Arizona, I was talking to you about the tournament. Well, I saw this guy pacing back and forth, and I'm going, man, that guy's going to drive himself crazy. His son's pitching. I just knew it. This guy is a former major league pitcher, and he's pacing like he's never played the game before in his life. It was almost comical to watch him. Greg Olson, the former relief pitcher for a myriad of teams, mostly known for the Baltimore Orioles, or at least that's the team that I knew him for because they drafted him in the first round, fourth overall pick. That's pretty good right there, folks. Fourth pick in the nation back when there were players when 1988, was it, Greg? Yes, it was. 1988, there were some good players in that draft. Yeah, we had a good draft. Um, It was uh, Andy Bennis was first, San Diego. And then uh, Steve Avery, Mark Lewis with a shortstop with the Indians. Robin Ventura was a couple guys behind me. Um, Jim Abbott was a couple guys behind me. Yeah, it was a pretty good draft. Wow, I'll say. But And they took Andy Bennis in front of you guys. They took Andy Bennis in front of me, yeah. Okay. He, uh, he had a good junior year and kind of blew up out of nowhere. And I had, I had mono my junior spring, so... My numbers were uh, not as good as my sophomore year, so I don't know. Well, I've got another gentleman that's coming on that uh, I was thinking about having you guys both on at the same time, but I didn't want I didn't want all of that experience on all at the same time. And this is one of the subjects that I'm going to touch on with him. I spoke to you briefly about travel baseball because. We were both in Arizona for the same exact thing, to watch our sons play in a travel baseball tournament that was put on by USA Baseball, which incidentally is a great organization. But we were with a travel ball organization, which, again, is another great organization. But that's not to say that they all are. And I want to speak with you about your feelings towards the fundamentals at the major league level, and even the professional level of baseball. Because when guys get to the big leagues, if they don't know the fundamentals by then, they haven't been taught correctly. 
So I'm blaming everybody from the little league coach on up. How do you feel about it? <laughs> well, uh, you know what? I, I had fun hanging out with you in Phoenix, and, and we, we ran through these discussions. Um, I think the, uh, the flaws of the game right now that we're seeing in Major League Baseball is travel ball amplified by a 10,000%. Um, the things I don't like about travel ball are guys are out there trying to throw as hard as they can when they're pitching. And they have zero concept of trying to get guys out with some change-up or, you know, good fastball location because what's the only way that you're going to get signed? You're going to try to throw as hard as you can, and you're going to put up your best radar gun number. What are all the what are what is almost everybody that comes in the, from the bullpen doing in the major league? Throwing as hard as they can and trying to put up a, a 99 or 100 on the board. You know, so these guys coming in from the bullpen look like they have zero concept of what they're trying to do, and then you watch all the home runs going out of the park and nobody cares if they strike out because if I show power and travel ball, then I get signed or I get picked up and nobody cares if I strike out. So nobody knows how to hit behind runners. And, you know, for me, travel ball, the problem with travel ball is that there is no end game. There's no reason for me to win this game. If I go three for four and I hit two doubles off the wall and my team loses, I'm happy. And that's not the way baseball is. Baseball is a team game. You play right, you play hard, you do it right, and, you know, good things happen. Can the, can the blame lie at the major league level, or can we not blame them because they really separate themselves from everybody else? I think we can blame them a little bit, but, you know, how hard is it to scold the guy for not getting a runner over because, He's never had to do it. Or, you know, when was the last time you saw a sacrifice bunt other than a pitcher? You know, these guys, don't, they don't do it growing up because it doesn't, it doesn't help their – it doesn't benefit them. You know, so guys don't know how to bunt. Guys, you know, guys don't know how to hit behind a runner with a runner on second, nobody out, and give up, give up their out, you know, to get him over to third base. And uh, so – I don't know how much you blame Major League Baseball. You know, how basic do those guys need to get in spring training? And, and I, I just don't think they can teach that part of the game. What about, what, about, what about the fact that you started to touch on it earlier about that who do they sign? When, when I watch these scouts go to these showcases and these tournaments that you and I are a part of now because of – of our sons, and I've got one that's a couple of years older than yours, so I see it twofold. Uh, but I see it all the time. I know exactly what you're talking about, Greg. When they've got a guy that's out there throwing bullets and throwing hard, you see all the radar guns come out. When you see a kid out on a mound throwing 83, 84, there's not that much interest being shown. And it's the same thing as a guy in the in the box that's uh, that's taking batting practice. Unless this guy's hitting bombs over the fence, you don't see guys writing on their tablets. And I tell you what, what do you tell a kid nowadays that wants to better himself in baseball and it's got an opportunity to be a good player? What do you tell him if he can't throw the ball 99, 100 miles an hour or can't hit the ball out of the ballpark 400 feet? 
You know what? I mean, what happened to the days where just getting the kids into a good college and getting a nice education and getting to play four years of baseball, there's nothing wrong with that, you know? And there, there is space and there is our room, his room for players that you just spoke about that, that play the game right. And, you know, I always laugh because I just got back from Auburn the week after we were in Phoenix. And, you know, the all-time NCAA strikeout leader in college baseball is a guy named John Powell who threw 87 miles an hour and cut it and sank it and changed it. And he got, he probably got to high A ball and, you know, couldn't get past that part of the game, but he had 600 strikeouts in four years at Auburn. He's the all time NCAA leader. And you look at that going, you know what? He got a four year degree. He, you know, had an unbelievable career, all American and goes 87 miles an hour, you know? And so there's nothing wrong with that. It's, learning to stay within your abilities and if you're going to throw 86 miles an hour well then you better sure how to figure out how to locate and change speeds manipulate the baseball and if you're not if you if you don't have you know a whole lot of pop god-given ability to have you know home run power then you better figure out how to put it in play and hit it hard somewhere and and run well they've always said good pitching will beat good hitting is that true anymore? I mean, we watched the All-Star game last night where there were 25 strikeouts and 79 at-bats. That's one out of every three guys that went to the plate or one out of three every three at-bats. There was a strikeout, but yet there were 10 home runs hit in the game. Every single run scored in the game was scored on a home run, but there was one sack fly other than that. And the 14 runs were scored by home runs and one sacrifice fly. Well, I mean, you watched the game. So, bottom of the ninth, I got a two-run lead, all right? So, my, I was a closer in the big league. I got a two-run lead. I walk a guy. Now the tying run comes to the plate. Here comes Scooter Gannett. He's The only way he's taken me deep is if I give him something on the inside part of the plate, He's not going to take the opposite field. He's not that type of guy. And it's like, here, you know what? I'm going to throw this as hard as I can. Here's 99 down and in. And Gannett gets one pitch that he can go deep on. It's like, you know what? Have a concept of what the game is right now. And I realize this guy's got 36 days and bleeding the league. But what can beat me right now? A two-run home run. Okay, how do I not do that? Well, let's not throw a ball down and in. You know? It's just a concept of – so, I mean, it wasn't good pitching. It was pitching last night. It, weren't, it wasn't good pitching. The Bregman home one run by, you know, my I've gotten lucky enough to do some radio games with the Orioles, and there's certain things you can't say. So I've just gotten used to saying, you know, the ball to Alex Bregman was middle, middle, middle. It was the perfect pitch to hit. Yes, it was. You know? And they hit him, too. So, That's the amazing yeah, thing about like, it is these guys aren't missing these pitches. Well, they're, they're not good pitches. You didn't miss these pitches. Those are the pitches you, know? you have to. I remember Dan Petrie making a quote in the newspaper uh, after I hit that three-run home run in the World Series 84. He goes, oh, it was a hanging slider. He should have hit it. Those are the pitches that you hit. If you can't hit hanging sliders, you're in trouble. Well, it's funny watching them now. These guys, you know. They've gotten so used to the strike zone being a couple inches below the waist that they take these 
you know, middle, middle, middle balls because they're just a shade up. And I'm like, those are the balls you go deep on, you know? And so, then, I mean, Brakeman didn't miss it. Nobody missed it. Nobody hit a good pitch out. Uh, Segura's, Segura's home run was a fastball middle away up around the belt. Like, I, you know I, think Trout, yeah, I think Trout. I think Trout's home run might have been the best pitch. Well, Trout's a little bit different animal, you know. I scouted for the Padres, the advanced scout, and we were playing the Angels, and I was out watching Trout, and I was like, I got no idea how to get this guy out. And it, it remains true. I mean, he's the best player in the game. You have to share with the listeners your Twitter flutter that you went into where you went through the unwritten rules of baseball. And you don't have to go through all of them, but just pick out your top five. Well, it all started with Brian Dozier saying, uh, uh, Chance Cisco with the Orioles, drag bunting, you know, when the Twins are winning 7-1, to one, bottom of the ninth, and the Twins put on a shift, nobody out, and the Orioles are chasing six runs, so... Cisco lays down a drag button. It was perfect. And so Brian Dozier's like, you know, he goes, that was really wrong. We weren't stealing when we were up seven to one. And, you know, it's just etiquette of baseball, but they got veterans in the Orioles clubhouse and I'm sure we'll take care of it. <laughs> we talked about it a little bit in Phoenix. I was like, oh, this guy's an idiot. I was like, you don't run because you're up seven to one. Well, if you did that, I'd kill the next guy because you're up seven to one and you shouldn't be stealing and we're not even holding you on. And I was like, well, what's wrong with bunting down six runs if you're going to give him the whole open third baseline? So I was like, you know, bunting in the ninth inning is perfectly legal unless it's in a no hitter and don't bunt the ninth inning. That was, I think that was number one. Um, I had some fun with it. It was, you know, Verlander was upset. Somebody running when he was winning five to nothing in a three zero count. I've never heard that one. Uh, let's go back oh, to the nine. Uh, let's go yeah. back to the no hitter in the ninth inning, real quick. Where where do you draw the line as far as the no hitter is concerned? Because I think you can bunt until the third out is made into the ninth inning. If it's a, a ball game to where you're going to be the tying or go ahead run, you know what? It just the, the rule is, you know, almost once seventh inning passes, there's there's no bunting for a hit and a no hitter is kind of the unwritten part of it, you know. And I think you probably agree with me. That's the way it's written or unwritten. Okay. I don't. I, I don't. You know what? I mean. I got to pitch a no-hitter, and it was a two-run lead, and if one of those guys tried to bunt on me, I wouldn't have had a problem with it because the next guy coming up is the tying run. So you, you're, you're, playing, you're playing the game. Any way you can get on base in a no-hitter and give yourself a chance to tie the game, all good with me. But, you know, 150 years, apparently the rule is, you know, after the seventh inning, no, no bunt. Well, I don't, you know, I... I kind of have a problem with it, but I don't have a problem with it because if you're telling me as a hitter that I shouldn't bunt because it's respect, it's respect for the game, it's respect for what you've done for eight and a third or eight and two thirds innings, but yet the 
third baseman is playing back on the left field grass and the shortstop's deep in the hole because I'm a pull hitter, then that tells me you're not respecting me, not you as a as a pitcher, but all but the defense. I agree. And that's why I think that if it's the tie-in run or the winning run, I don't care if the guy's throwing a perfect game. You got to play the game the way it's normally played in that situation. And if the guy gets the perfect game and a no-hitter, then good for him. But you got to play me for a bunt in that situation, just like you would if the guy's given up 11 hits. Absolutely agree with you, Kurt. I'm just, you know, we were just going through the unwritten rules. And I just had, you know, I had some, I had Tim Leary, the former Dodger, chipping in. Um, who else did I have? I had a couple guys that were chipping in on and kind of helping me because, you know, it's hard to come up with 29 unwritten rules uh-huh. when, they're, when they're not written. So, so if somebody wants to see this, where do they go? Where do they go on Twitter to see your unwritten rules? Oh, I think somebody pasted them. I I don't, I need to put them somewhere. They they can find them, but yeah, the uh, Greg Olson Facebook page had them. I was, they were on Twitter. So you can find me at Greg Olson 30, G-R-E-G-G-O-L-S-O-N, uh, 30 on Twitter. And you can probably go back in my tweets and, Every day for the month of April, I had an unwritten rule. You know, don't hit somebody to hurt them. You know, always, you know, stay below the head when you're trying to throw at somebody. Uh, hitters don't peek into the catcher's signs. And then I said, you know, while I said don't steal signs from the catcher, you can steal signs from the catcher when you're at second base. That's perfectly fine. Um, you can steal coaches' signs. Just don't get caught. You can steal any sign, just don't get caught. Sure. You know, so we had, you know, you read over them. It was, it was, it was kind of comical. The longer it went, it was like, hey, I had, I'd forgotten about that one. I was making little scribble notes in my car as I'm driving around going, oh, I got tomorrow's. So it was fun. I got, I think I got 29 of them. It was fun. It was fun looking at them. And, uh, and Greg, I, I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to have you on thank you so very very much i hope to see you again i mean we don't live very far from one another but uh our paths have never crossed before last uh couple of weekends ago so uh, i know it was was fun yeah i let's uh let's do it again again thank you and if uh if anybody wants to uh see greg olson's uh unwritten rules of baseball you can go to uh, his twitter at greg olson is it Yep, at Greg Olson 30. There you go. At Greg Olson 30. I'll remind you of that before the show's over. We're going to continue on. Greg, thanks again. I appreciate the opportunity to have you on. Greg Olson, everybody. Boy, this guy was with more clubs than me. I mean, he started out with Baltimore, went to Atlanta, Cleveland, Kansas City, Detroit, Houston, Minnesota. Is this possible? Kansas City, Arizona. Los Angeles. Oh, he's with, okay, with teams a couple of different times. All right, I can see that. My God, he was with a lot of clubs in that 14-year career that he had. Boy, he signed for 200000 bucks back in 1988. That was a lot of money back then. He was the number one overall draft choice. And Andy Bennis of the San Diego Padres went in front of him. And Chipper Jones was in that draft. Whew. 
talking about guys they missed on, scouts didn't miss too much on these guys. Votto, Yelich, Story, Contreras, Jeanette, Bregman, Judge, Trout, Springer, Segura. Name sound familiar? Yeah. They were all the guys that homered in last night's game. We're going to talk about the All-Star game and a lot of other things. With, I think he's an institution here in San Diego. I know ever since I've been here, I've heard him. I respect him. I've never been on a show with him before. And I'd like to welcome Coach John Cantera to Dirty Kurt's Dugout. Coach, how are you? Ah, doing good, doing good. What's going on? So tell me what you're doing right now. And I'm curious because it's an off night. There's no Major League Baseball, and I would imagine you're bored to hell. Yeah, I'm just watching this AAA ball game right now. I think it was played about uh, four or five days ago, the Pacific <laughs> Coast League and the International League. And uh, we're watching Urias play the, the Padres, uh, one of their top prospects, uh, from what I hear. And uh, just watching a bunch of guys that have been there, done that, and guys trying to hang on. Coach, let's talk about the All-Star game a little bit from last night. Uh, I, I just mentioned to, to the folks listening, uh, 10 home runs, uh, all 14 runs, uh, were due to a home run except for one sack fly. So 13 runs, uh, were scored last night off a home run. The national league hits a buck 89. The American league hit three hits three ten. There's 25 strikeouts in the game between the two teams in a total of 79 at bats. So every third at bat somebody strikes out is good pitching still going to be able to beat good hitting oh i i think so uh you know i think uh what we saw last night is kind of what we've seen uh uh the majority of this baseball season a lot of strikeouts a lot of homers and um you know it's just uh i don't know the, the game's going obviously through a transformation right now and i i, I don't really particularly care for it but uh I guess maybe some of the younger fans uh, that you know just want to see uh, runs put on the board, they might really enjoy it. But I think guys that have been around baseball, played baseball, coached baseball, and uh, came up uh, through the ranks, uh, you know, that are uh, 45 and older, probably look at it and probably aren't all that excited about it. You tweeted something out that I found very interesting uh, back a few days ago. And you said that if Commissioner Manfred wants to speed up the game of baseball, that he should look to the umpires to do it. In in other words, that's what you said. Yeah, By and, and I think them uh, calling a strike zone. Well, I, I think you know the, in the rule book it says uh, from uh, the armpits to the, the the hollow of the knees, and you know nowadays there very seldom is there a strike called uh, above the waist. Uh, you know anything above the waist is an automatic ball, and you know I don't know. I mean, you go back to when you were playing. Uh, you know, they called a better strike zone. Of course, the American League had a tendency of being a high ball league and the National League a low ball league. Uh, but, you know, I'd like to see them, you know, open that strike zone up a little bit and force hitters to swing the bat. I mean, Kurt, well, let's face it, back uh, when you were playing in the big leagues, coming up through the minor league, uh, the byproduct of a walk was a quality at bat, fouling off some tough pitches, uh, taking some uh, tough pitches. And, you know, if you got a walk, you'd earn the walk. Well, 
a lot of guys now, they're just up there, you know, they want to work the count, but they're not good enough hitters really to work the count because once they get two strikes, they have no two-strike approach. They have no idea why you would ever want to choke up on a bat, uh, you know, to be able to use, uh, be able to control the barrel better. You know, I, I watched Rizzo this past weekend, and, you know, the Padres kept shifting on him, and he continued to beat the Padres because he'll take what they give him, and he just goes the other way, the other way, and, Rizzo's got one of the best two strikes approach in all of baseball right now, and you know I think a lot of young kids, uh, if they would watch him, uh, they could learn a lot about hitting. Uh, you know, you got to be able to control that barrel. A lot of these hitters, they take the same swing with two strikes as they took with no strikes. Let, let's talk about that for a minute because I was astounded at the way Rizzo was pitched last week when the Cubs were in town, because most of the time, if you shift to the guy. You're going to pitch to that shift. But the Padres were doing it just the opposite. They were pitching well, away from the shift, and Rizzo was beating them by doing that. He was hitting the ball the other way. But if you're going to shift to Rizzo, don't you pitch him in? Well, absolutely. But, hey, you know, there, there's a lot of things that go into this shift. I mean, you know, they're, they're talking, uh, and I want to get to your point here in a second, but, you know, uh, the commissioner's talking about, how they're going to put rules in play to limit the shift. Why? As long as we have nine play or eight players in, in fair territory, that's all that should matter. I mean, if, if a team wants to shift, and, you know, I use the Padres as an example. The Padres have gotten beat a lot this year uh, with the shift. I thought Andy Green's first year, uh, the shift played very well. I thought last year was kind of up and down. This year, I've seen it get beat more times than not. And I, I use the Padres as an example because that's the team I see play. Uh, the most often, but, you know, getting back to your point, you know, th- there's a lot of things that go into to being able to make that shift work. First of all, uh, you know, is he a left-handed pitcher on the mound or is he a right-handed pitcher? What kind of command does he have? You know, Eric Lauer was on the mound Sunday and, you know, he couldn't uh, hit his spot. He's a young pitcher and, you know, you, you leave a ball uh, away to a guy like Rizzo. He didn't have to do much other than put his bat on the ball because there's only one guy on that side of the infield and he's playing shortstop and Freddie Galvis, so it's an easy base hit. Uh, so, you know, I know Clayton Kershaw, he's not a big fan of the shift, even though he's a guy that can hit his spots. But you got to have a guy on the mound that, that can hit spots. And, you know, I'll be honest with you, I thought the best way to play Rizzo, having watched him play a lot, you don't need to shift on Rizzo. Just play him straight away because he's the guy that will spray the ball all over the field the way I look at it. You know, I felt the same way with him, and I and it's confusing as to why that shift is so extreme on Rizzo. But you, I think you're sure. right. I think the ball club, uh, when I say the ball club, I'm talking about the Padres because both uh, uh, Coach Quintero and myself are, are here in San Diego and those are the majority of the games that we get to see on a nightly basis. You're right. They have been beat more by the shift. But I wonder it's be, if it's because the hitters are getting a little smarter and I'm wondering if they're starting to go away from that shift, and that's a reason that the Padres are getting beat on it more this year, or at least that's what we're seeing. Well, I would hope uh, the hitters uh, in baseball are getting smarter overall. I mean, hey, Kurt, well, let's face it. I mean, you played a long time in the big leagues, but you also went up and down from the big leagues to AAA, and uh, the, the biggest word in baseball is probably adjustment. And I don't think the hitters over the last couple of years have done a great job of adjusting to what they're seeing with this shift right now. They want to hit over it. And, again, that takes you out of your natural swing. You're trying to do things that 
you've never done, and now you're you're trying to you know they talk about the launch angle. Hey, how about just being a good, solid, fundamental hitter? I mean, that's a a big problem. You got guys coming up through the ranks right now that really don't know how to hit, yet they're trying to uh, incorporate this flight upswing, uh, all of Ted Williams, and they're not Ted Williams. Fundamental. You just used that word, and I think uh, that could uh, segue very nicely into uh, my next question for you, and that is fundamentals. At the major league level, are you amazed at the lack of fundamentals that are at the major league level nowadays? You know, I don't know if it's so much the lack of fundamentals at the big league level. I'm just, I'm a little more surprised at how many mental mistakes I see. And, and that's, that, you know, that's instincts, natural instincts. Those are things that go into when you go out to evaluate a player. I mean, what kind of natural baseball instincts does he have? And, and I'm a believer that you've got to have instincts. I don't, I don't think you get better at instincts. We just have that innate uh, ability to, you know, read uh, certain things, a ball in the dirt, anticipation, you know, have your head in the game, being able to go from first to third without depending on your coach to, to make that call. But, you know, as far as the fundamentals of being able to throw to a base uh, consistently, uh, being fairly accurate, being able to charge your ball in the proper position, getting behind a fly ball, coming through it properly, uh, shortening up, going the other way to move that runner over to third base with less, you know, with nobody out. Uh, you know, those are things that, you know, you would like to see done. Uh, but you'd also like to see them done in the college level, where I think they're probably done a little bit more because the coaches have more control. In fact, I think at the college level, coaches have way too much control. And at the, at the lower levels, I, I think, uh, whether it's high school, you know, your high school coach is uh, trying to teach your fundamentals. You, you go on a club team, and depending on what club you play for, you may or may not get some really good coach. And, you know, a lot of the the clubs I've seen, uh, to be honest with you, over the last couple of summers, they play so many games and they play and they practice very little. Uh, the last thing the kids want to do is, you know, go out and work on fundamentals when they've just gotten back from being on the road for six or seven days at some tournament down in Florida or Georgia or somewhere else. And, uh, you know, they want to get away from baseball. So, you know, baseball's got some problems. I mean, there's a lot of good young talent right now. We saw a lot of it last night in that big league all-star game. Uh, those guys are the best of the best, and that's why they were in that game. But, you know, to build this game and continue to grow it, uh, baseball can't turn its back to, you know, some of the lack of things that are going on. Well, the commissioner, I don't think, can be talking about uh, doing the things that they're talking about, worrying about shifts and, uh, and, and things like that. I mean, I saw something uh, about two weeks ago where they were literally having discussions. They were wasting time in my mind. And when I say they, I'm talking about the Major League Baseball Players Association and the commissioner's office sitting down and discussing the shoes. What <laughs> shoes the players were going to wear or what shoes they would be able to wear at the right. Major League level. Because MLB controls everything nowadays. If you don't, If there's not an MLB stamp on a product, you don't see it in the stadiums or on any of the players. Right. And, and, and that's, I think that's part of the game that, uh, and part of the problem in the game. You know, I've heard something recently that I'm going to look into on this show, just like I looked into the, the Lost Boys of Summer when we first started uh, this show. And I've heard 
that it was negotiated in the last collective bargaining agreement that the Players Association has uh, put a rule down or let the players know that tipping is not necessary anymore for the clubhouse attendance. When I heard this, I went, what? I go, why would they even do that? You know, it's almost like telling somebody you're going to go into an IHOP restaurant with your family. You don't have to tip the waitress. Right. That's well, basically you know, sir, what we're what talking about. What I do about. know about that, I, I do know a little bit about it. Oh, good. I'm glad. Try to get a little bit more information. Uh, basically, you're, you're going to find this even more bizarre uh, because I know you uh, were, were, were good to those guys in the clubhouse when you played. You weren't one of those cheapskates like some guys can be. Um, you don't have to pay your daily dues any longer. That That's what it is. That was part of the collective bargaining agreement. So what has happened, from what I understand, it's actually it's interesting you bring this up because I was actually in a conversation last week with somebody and we were talking about this. And, yeah, you don't pay your, your daily dues like you once did, but you can still tip the guys. And, and, you know, the guys do get tipped. But because of that, a lot, most of the ball clubs that I'm aware of, including the Padres, they've taken care of these guys in the clubhouse. If they're paying them more money than they used to because – they they expected you know the ballplayers pretty much to take care of those guys you know they made a salary but not a, a huge salary and they you know do things for the players along with getting their uh, daily dues from them they would get nice tips you know you go move your car or take your car to the airport or whatever uh, but most of these ball clubs including the Padres now have up the ante for those guys in the clubhouse that are paying them more money. You know what. I'm going to stop talking about that right now, and I want you to promise me that you will do a show soon with me on that topic. Sure. Because I am going to spend the next couple of weeks looking into this. Okay. And you hear all of these stories about the ball club, whoever it may be. Uh, Let's take the San Diego Padres, for instance, that have increased the salary of the clubhouse attendant. Right. What about the visiting clubhouse attendant, and what about his assistants? Well, okay, I, there. I said I, I'm going to stop. Okay. <laughs> I'm just trying to make a point because the ball club's going to brag about increasing the salary of the clubhouse guy, who's the main attendant guy, but they're not going to say anything about his assistants. So, did they increase it enough where he can pass uh, enough money down? To where it makes up, and why did the play? Why did they leave the players out of this deal? It does. It makes absolutely no sense. It just absolutely doesn't make any sense. Whether the ball clubs were nice enough to give the clubhouse attendants more money salary wise or not, they should still allow the players to tip the guys as much as they want. And you know what, John? I've heard that there's clubs walking out of the out of the ballpark without tipping the guys anything. Well, that's Bush League. I mean, like like I said, you don't have to pay your daily dues, but the guys do, from what I heard, they still tip the players. And, you know, not everybody's going to tip guys. You know the way it is. I mean, there's always a, a cheapskate there uh, somewhere along the line, but uh, as far as the daily dues, they're no more from what I understand. And the daily dues stopped at how much money? Do you know that? No, I don't know that. We'll, we'll, we'll look into that. Because I, I seem to remember, and I was talking to uh, to a former player day before yesterday on this because he was the one that brought this to my attention. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I I seem to remember giving the guys about fifty dollars a day. That was my recollection of it uh, when I was playing. And so, in other words, if we went in for a three- or four-game series, I'd write the guys a check for somewhere between 150 and 250 bucks. Right. So, and, and this is before these guys started getting them to wash their Maseratis and all of that stuff. Right. And that's before uh, guys were making, you know, five, ten, fifteen, twenty million a year, too. Yeah, they probably would have gotten a little more from me if I was making that much. Yeah, well, you you had a good <laughs> reputation for taking care of the guys. Well, I mean, it's just it's common courtesy. I mean, it really well, is. So let yeah, let's that's go to you were brought up right. Not everybody realizes it's common courtesy. Yeah, uh, you know what? I was brought up right, and I tell my two sons that all the time. Um, I I always like to brag about my dad, who I loved them to death, but there were times where I was scared to death of them. And I could, tell, I could tell, I could tell if I was in trouble when I came home, and boy, it was not good. It was not good. There were a couple of those times where my mom had to come in and rescue me. Yeah, luckily, uh, my mom was uh, kind of the disciplinarian in our, our house, and if it got to my dad, uh, I usually wanted to be in my bedroom and be asleep by the time he got home because he uh, not only was a great guy, but a tough guy and uh, played college football, was a professional boxer. So I didn't want him to use my head as a speed bag. <laughs> was not your dad he ever big? Did. Was he not big? Not that he ever did. Was he big, Coach? Your dad? Uh, he was He was 5'11", but he was a big, strong farm boy from up in Madeira. And uh, he played football at Nevada, and, and uh, he was a Golden Gloves uh uh, fighter up there, and then fought pro for a couple of years. You know, you know, he had he had some good fights, and actually was a state champ in Nevada at one point in time in 1949. And then the guy that uh, he knocked, or the guy that he beat in 49, a guy named Jitterbug Collier, knocked him out in 1950. And he fought a little bit after that, but uh, he he got out of the boxing game and came down to North San Diego County and made a great life for him and his family. Well. You know, you get to hear a lot of things on this podcast that I think a lot of people don't get to hear on other podcasts. And a lot of it is this behind-the-scenes stuff, like we were just talking about with these clubhouse attendants. I mean, this stuff, um, I think the more you hear, the more interested you're going to be because nobody even knows about these guys. They're, right. they're the unheralded guys that work so hard, and they're there way before the players are way before the manager gets there. And trust me, there's players that spend a lot of time in the clubhouse. And there's managers that spend even more time than some of the players, believe it or not. But these guys, if think about it. There's times where a major league club will get back from a trip at 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. Well, guess who's there to meet them? The clubhouse guys. That's right. And they're commonly known as clubbies. I think, you know, Doty? Bob yeah. Doty still works for the Arizona Diamondbacks. And Bob Doty's a good guy. There's no doubt about Bob that. Bob Doty is a great guy. And you know what? He was one of the clubhouse boys in our locker room when I was playing for the San Diego Padres. So you know what? what? It must be a pretty good job. And I'm going to find out how good it is now or how much has been taken away from these guys. And we're going to report on it. But you know why? Because if it's part of collective bargaining agreement, 
I got a little chip on my shoulder with a few things that the Players Association might not be doing right now, and they need to go into the bargaining table with the, with the owners, and they need to get some things done. I think that the next collective uh, bargaining is going to be tough. We well, I will think see. it's going to be tough, too, because uh, Tony Clark, who uh, is from San Diego, played at Valhalla High School and then went out as senior and played at Christian, and of course, Tony spent a little time with the Padres towards the end of his career. Uh, he comes in and he looks at it a lot different than just about anybody else that's ever been the head of the Major League Baseball Players Association. Here's a guy who played a long time in the big leagues, uh, and he knows what the players want. I think uh, you know he's he not he's not an easy guy. You know, I thought it was interesting today, Kurt. Uh, you know that Tony, you know, basically said, you know, there's some things I'm not happy about. I don't know about this DH in the National League and. You know, we can debate that until we're blue in the face. There's positives, there's negatives to it. Um, and, you know, I I kind of like the National League style of baseball, and I think you probably do as well. But, uh, you know, with, with all the problems that we're having with guys swinging the bat, do we want a, a pitcher up there that's hitting 113? I mean, I, I don't know. But if you're a bench guy, a guy like you uh, that, you know, came off the bench a lot as a, a key pinch hitter or a double switch guy, I mean, guys in the National League, they're not going to get to play as much as they do now. Well, I'm all for them keeping the DH in the American League. I'm not too sure about the National League because I like the differences. But i got to tell you something, John. You know where they need to get rid of the DH? In amateur baseball. Yeah, well, a lot of times the the best uh, athlete on the team uh, in high school and coming up through the ranks is that uh, the pitcher who plays shortstop when he doesn't pitch. And he gets the bat taken out of his hand if that coach decides that he's going to be a P.O. and he's never got it in his hand again. I mean, it's yeah. a damn shame. It really is. I mean, it, there's a lot of situations that I think that fall within the realm of, you know what, maybe we can do something about this or maybe we can suggest doing something about this and get the back in the ha- uh, bat back in the hands of who, you know who it's going to be the best players on the field. Yeah, that's right. So, I agree. Coach John Gutierrez, I appreciate the time. Another right, edition well, hey, of Dirty Kurtz Dugout. Me. Enjoy the podcast uh, a great deal and uh, keep it rolling because uh, you can educate a lot of the people out there if they really want to learn baseball. They can certainly learn it by uh, tuning into this podcast. Well, thank you, John. I appreciate that. And then, and they're going to learn something about clubhouse attendance. You know why? Because you and I are going to make sure that uh, they we'll do. We'll do it again. Hey, you know what? Let me, let me say one thing about the clubhouse tennis before I get out of here. We'll get back to it another time. But, you know, you talked about them being there really early before the players and the manager. Mm-hmm. And believe me, they're, they're way after the players and manager have gone home. And those guys are still you know, cleaning uniforms at 1, one thirty, two o'clock in the morning to get ready for that day game the next day. So, you know, those guys are invaluable to your organization. They need to be appreciated and loved. And I think people that are, spend a lot of time around the ballpark uh, as a player or as a broadcaster as we have, and we got great appreciation for what those people bring to the table. And, and they're a big part of any organization that they're involved with. Yes, they are. I appreciate you saying that. We're going to look into it, I promise you. And I promise all of you listening that Coach John Cantero, who's an institution here in San Diego, and I'm sure uh, that everybody's going to like the fact that he's going to be back on this show. And you can listen to him, by the way, on some of the pre- and post-game shows on the Padres' new uh, station, 97.3, here in San Diego. Well, 
That's another edition of Dirty Courage Dugout. Let me tell you something about www.patreon.com slash Kurt Bavacqua. Go there and check it out because not only can you subscribe to this podcast by going there, but in the next few days, I'm going to be putting up a deal there that I think is going to be like no other, and I don't think you're going to be able to refuse it. So it's got to do with wine. It's got to do with the podcast, and it's got to do with the Hall of Fame. So thanks again for listening. This is Dirty Kurtz Dugout, episode number 12. We'll be on 13 next time, and I'm expecting all of you to be back with me. Until then, goodbye, everybody. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially with... 